Uncontrolled Airspace podcast are participating as private individuals. Their comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the various organizations they work with. Also, anything you hear on this podcast that sounds like advice on aircraft operation is obviously very general. You should always consider your own situation, remember your training, and fly the airplane. But you knew that. Oh, and real pilots fly Cessnas. Hey, listen, remember when we were in Oshkosh and uh, vaguely and everyone there were there was a there was a, a, a whole spectrum of, of responses and attitudes and and, uh, you know, whatnot on the uh, on the uh, predator drone that was there. All right. The, oh, yeah. OK. Yeah. And and yeah, one of them making a single one of them. Well, no, actually. So we were standing there. I believe it was you. I'm pretty sure it was you, Jeb, who was among a group of people, and we were standing there talking to uh, the uh, military gentleman who was uh, who was there. Uh, David was there with his two kids. That's right. Uh, tasked not only with uh, with uh, speaking to the public, but apparently was part of the uh, mission team. And uh, we were asking a lot of interesting questions. He was a good guy, and uh, uh, and uh, he was basically answering our questions. But then we got into the subject of what happens if one of them gets away. All right. Yeah. Basically, what happens if one of them suffers lost calm of some sort and the ground controllers can no longer control it? And he was talking at first in a little bit of detail about things that happen, and we kept pressing him. But then, what happens if this happens? And he gets more and more vague and more and more vague. And right. then, he, and then he sort of waved the you know, and that's secret you know thing at, at <laughs> some point. Okay. Um, but but it, the implication was there was a secret method to to either regain control or deep six this thing. I guess that's not a good right. metaphor, not the right metaphor for aviation, but you get my point, okay? Well, that's the setup for what we what we find in a in a uh, an article like that maybe just came out in uh, uh, popularscience.com, popsci.com. Uh, let's see now. This is uh, dated uh, like 2 days ago. Air Force drone shoots Runaway or Air Force shoots down runaway drone over <laughs> Afghanistan. It was about to attack an <laughs> yeah. Afghanistan banana stand. So apparently, uh, from just skimming this story, uh, and these drones are used all the time, and we are seeing a picture of one in the PopSci article uh, that looks fairly heavily armed um, for a drone. Oh at yeah, least. that's a Reaper. And um, what uh, was the what was the Question I asked the two, uh, Amy, excuse me for a moment. What was the question I asked the two of you a couple months ago? I think back at Oshkosh. Uh, I forget. What was it? Remind us. The question was, on what date did um, did Skynet become self-aware? Skynet become self-aware, exactly. And that's 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 all you need to know. Jeb went through a period where he was really quite troubled by the whole subject of Skynet. And uh, the robots, the robots are going to get us eventually. <laughs> well, this particular robot uh, lost uh, lost contact, lost with, that battle with its controllers, <laughs> and uh, went Somebody wandering. Tell me what kind of little stencil you put below the cockpit rail. When one of your shoot downs is a remotely piloted vehicle, no, you get a lot of pride out of this, right? You know. And, uh, so I mean, what? Can ha- you tell anybody? Do you get a medal for winning well, the battle of pilotless vehicle? That's that's like that that one fifty or one fifty two, whatever it was, out of out of Smoketown, Pennsylvania, oh. that keeps that keeps getting run down. 
going into the DC airspace without a clearance. The same airplane has got has done it twice. There, I there's think a magnetic she, there's a magnetic flux reaction when that airplane gets within fifty miles exactly. of the Washington Monument. It gets <laughs> sucked toward limestone. I really did. I really no, did. Doing though, Jack, what they should be doing is they should be painting silhouettes of Black Hawk helicopters on the side underneath the window. Oh, I agree. I agree. I really did subscribe to that airplane, that air, that end number in uh, FlightAware. <laughs> you want to know where it's going. Yeah. <laughs> it, has not, it has not filed a flight plan since that day. I don't know whether that's indicative of something. They may be considering scrapping it, actually. Oh, no. Well, I was thinking there may, it might be worth checking to see if there's a change of registration application pending. You think the you think the number is bad luck? And you're gonna... A couple of rolls of blue tape and a case of Krylon, and we'll fix it. <laughs> no, no, they're yeah, gonna... like sounds like the nummy that uh, had me flying his uh, experimental once. When I asked him how, you know, when did they finish flying off the forty hours, and how come there wasn't a registration number on the airplane? Uh, or the real question was, did you register this as an LSA or uh, uh, ultralight number or experimental amateur build? Had you registered? And about that time, he breaks out a roll of of, uh, of, of plastic tape and starts putting an end number on there that I found out later was made up. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure that shocked you. Yeah. No, you know uh, what? And when it, well, I found that out about the same time that I found out that the, the moment that I took off in it solo, it had exactly two hours of airtime on it. Oh, Dave, 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 Dave. Uh. You know, we were well past the statute of limitations on this one, but uh, it caused me to, from that point forward, to start asking to see the aircraft logbooks before I flew. Well, as long as you were solo, it wasn't a problem, Dave. You just were a test pilot. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And and we discovered a couple of things uh, uh, about its flying characteristics that didn't make the uh, producer all that happy when they showed up in the magazine article. Yeah, well, that's nothing new either. Mm. (laughs) Yeah. Mm. It was fun. I'll never fly that one again. So they had to send a fighter plane after this Predator. Yeah, what'd they shoot it down with, guns or missiles? <laughs> I don't know. One of us is going to have to read this article. We got taken to task in the oh, forums. Sure it was, I'm sure it was a missile. We got taken to task in the forums. This is now a really straying off topic here. We got taken to task in the forums uh, in the last, well, actually, I read it in the last couple of days. I'm kind of behind. Um by a uh, by a uh, Airbus th- uh, 320 captain, all right, yeah. um, who said that he loves the podcast and he listens all the time. But there were a couple recently where we were talking about 380s and Airbus procedures and so forth, where he said he was literally screaming at his at his uh, you know oh, oh, at, his, at his iPod, <laughs> all right, saying, "No, you guys are just wrong." <laughs> so, What's the straight scoop? Tell us the straight scoop, Wendy. I, you know, would have to have to dig up. All right, while we're talking, I'll see if I can dig up his his posting here. But uh, um, we'll come back to that. That's uh, all right, because you like to be corrected. I mean, come on. Oh, I'm 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 happy to be corrected. I just want to get it right eventually. Yeah, no. I'm never right the first time. And it happens all the time. So you know, we ought to be getting good at it by now. Anyways, they had to shoot down the predator, uh, and uh, this sort of suggests that maybe they don't have the most robust procedure for. Uh, for recapturing these things, uh, well, actually, well, it looks like they've got a pretty good procedure. <laughs> That's not what the guy implied. We, you know, we were trying to lead the guy at Oshkosh that, to that to that, that answer. All right. If that's Plan A, I would love to hear about Plan B. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
So, well, uh, you know, the article says here that they have a quote unquote zero out function. This is the Reaper and a Predator both. Uh, and the difference between the two, Reaper's bigger and carries things that shoot at you. Uh, have a zero out function that permits operators to wipe their data remotely. But that may not work if the link between the operator and the drone goes dead. And right. a lot of these operators are like in the states. So the link is going over satellite. Uh, such lost link incidents actually represent common troubles for the two drones, the article says. Uh, predator pilots constantly update a set pattern for their drones so that the plane will loiter in that pattern if it loses communications with its operator, which happens frequently, the article says. The drones are even programmed to automatically head toward home to reestablish contact if the link remains dead for too long. Uh, if communications cannot be restored and the fail-safe measures fail, as they appear to have happened here, current drones lack remote kill or self-destruct mechanism. So in this case, they sent one sent somebody out to shoot it down. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And we need to dig and find out exactly what they did paint on the side of that particular fighter plane. Ah, uh, well. Okay. Hey, welcome, folks, to... <laughs> I'm sorry, that was a really the remotely really piloted podcast. That was really weak. <laughs> when did you push play, man? A long time ago. A long time ago. <laughs> Welcome. Oh, that's never good. Welcome, folks, to episode 154 of Uncontrolled Airspace, the General Aviation Podcast. Recording this episode on uh, Wednesday evening, September 16, 2009, just three short days since we recorded 153. So Remotely, uh, we might add. So, We're doing this remotely. We we're gonna have to make Ed up. Jack e- has no control. Yeah, we're gonna have to make up even more stuff than usual on this episode because we, <laughs> we just talked a couple days ago. Hey, Ew, look, you brought me in, and, and we brought Amy in, so we're gonna have some sort of veracity, some sort of you know well, like. It, it, it's a, nice. A that there's been so much happen in three days. I, I mean. know, I know. Hey, let me say hi to my friends here in the hangar, and then we'll see what we what we stumble into here. Jeb Burnside, Bur. <sighs> I don't Take know why. Drink, Jack. I don't know. Take another Maybe drink. that's what it is. Jeb Burnside. He, 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 he who controls the mixing board controls the podcast. <laughs> I control the horizontal. I control he the vertical. controls the vertical, yeah. And Jeb is talking to us from somewhere near Sarasota, Florida. Hi, Jeb. How are you? I'm fine. Um, <laughs> uh, what's your name again? <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> it's only fair. Uh, I'm, I'm really good. Uh, it's been a, a fairly good week so far. Um, happy to be back with you guys and with Amy. Um, has it really only been three days? It's only been three days. It is only Wednesday. Yep. Um, Time flies when you're having fun. It does, doesn't it? Yep. It does. Yep, yep. Also here in the virtual hangar is Dave Higdon, who's joining us from Wichita, Kansas. Hey, David. Not again. Again. Oh, yeah. Hi, everybody. Again. Uh, <laughs> Hope you had time to restock the beer. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I got some well, we, fresh cold Chinese red here. So mm-hmm. Yeah, we didn't, we didn't need to restock. We had already stocked up enough. Yeah. Uh-huh. I have uh, Sunset Wheat tonight. Line and and what is this? Uh, the sunsets amber. over the wheat. You still drinking that classic amber? or? Uh, yeah. 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 I was looking for that. They didn't have that in my store. You know, yeah. I was I was gonna have a beer, and then Mars said wine. You know, oh. uh, how who am I to argue? I know, oh, I know. Oh, and that third voice is Amy Laboda, who's talking to us from Fort Myers, Florida. Hi, Amy. Hi, how are you this evening? We're doing pretty good. We're doing pretty good. Talking with my friends, uh, drinking wine, uh, having a good night. And David, you're drinking just to kind of complete the list here. Uh, Liney's red. Liney's red. Okay. There you go. 
What's up, Amy? How you doing? We haven't talked to you in a little while. I'm doing just fine. Thank you very much. Actually, went flying over the weekend. Um, and uh, yeah, you know, it's an interesting thing. We call them highly perishable skills in yeah. the uh, flight training market. Mm-hmm. But I can tell you right now that after a summer of spending most of my time in the Kit Fox with my daughter, by the way. Right. Uh, training, right? Uh, training. Yep. Climbing back into the RV-10 and trying to shoot an approach is a scary, scary thing. Really? <laughs> Why? Just because uh -huh. the airplanes feel so different? Well, let's just say you're moving a lot faster. Yeah. <laughs> okay. yeah. Landings are fine. Landing's not the problem. <laughs> okay. It's getting from up there really? to down there. <laughs> why, why is the takeoff such a problem? Not. No, no. Takeoff's oh. not the problem. Uh -oh. Landing's not okay. the problem. It's getting from I'm up sorry, there to back that. down here. Yeah, it's that transition. It's actually pushing the buttons. Because the Kifox has none. Yeah. There are no yeah. buttons. Oh, oh okay. I get it. I get it. Okay, there's a there's a yep. Grand Rapids Technologies EIS. That's it, and you can push next. <laughs> it's something that maybe uh, you're not seeing uh, on the general screen, but um, I I am I am thoroughly humbled by my box. Um, here's the beauty of it: Grand Rapids Technologies, a, a company that I've come to love because I own two of their products, um, has put some new software out um, after Sun and Fun. And suddenly, I have a flight director. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, in the yeah, RV-10. something new in the RV-10, right? So this, exactly. this is purely software. Purely software. Cool. But uh -huh. it does hook into the S-Tech, uh, or not the S-Tech, it's uh, yeah, True Tech. I can't believe True Tech. Thank you. It must yeah. be the one. Um, the True Tech autopilot system. And there is a way, and we it took us a little doing to figure it out. But there is a way to actually fly coupled approaches in the RV-10. Oh wow! Now, for people who don't know, for people who don't know, give us a simple definition of coupled approach. Coupled Please. approach means the autopilot can fly your instrument landing approach. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. But it only, controls the horizontal. It controls the vertical. Bringing us well, back to in that. My, in my airplane, it really only controls the horizontal. Okay. Um, Bringing us back to that Skynet thing that Jeb was worried about a little the while Skynet ago. The Skynet thing that Jeb was worried about. Here you go. However, what I've also discovered through through trial and error and try again, try again over the summer, is that there are a lot of buttons that have to be pushed to set that up right. Uh -huh. A lot. Okay. Okay. And um, so many that you need to start a good 10 to 12 minutes before you need to shoot that approach. Seriously. Now, maybe I'll get better at it. And there, there are going to be people who call in. I hope Greg Toman calls in, who's the, the, the head of, of Grand Rapids Technologies, to tell me you will learn how to do this in three minutes. Is it the same series of buttons each time, or is it different based well, on the approach? Yeah, it's probably the same series. Because I'm wondering whether you can have some sort of macro or something. You know, if they're if no, <laughs> that's 
that's good though. I like you. You can't You're a pre-program guy, and I really respect that. Okay. And and there are some systems out there that try to do that, but no, you can't pre-program this. You have got to go through the steps. And what we have, the way that most GPS systems are set up, are layers. There's pages with tabs. Correct me, guys, if I'm wrong. Yeah. And you got to know what page you got to get to to get to the information you need to program your box. Yes or right. no? Okay. Yeah, well, and you have, you have to know it or have a really good checklist that leads you there every time. Agreed? Well, yes and no. Um, if it's a menu-driven system, there should be a logical way to find what you want each and every time. Uh, okay. But here's my, here's my rub. I have a Garmin system on one side, and I have a GRT system on the other side. And they are both menu-driven systems, Jeb. But yeah. as I've said, you might as well sever my damn corpus callosum mm. because they're so different in their yeah. logic structure. Yeah, yeah I get you. You need to memorize two totally different ways of doing it to use the two GPSs in my airplane. And you've got to flip the switch over to the Grand Rapids to program the coupling of the Grand Rapids to the autopilot. So you're yeah. going to exclude the Garmin no matter what when you do that, yeah. okay, to fly an ILS couple. Okay, fine. I'm happy with all that. But you've got to go through a couple layers to get to what you want to program the Grand Rapids. And it does take time. And I agree that it should only take me three minutes. But there is no software on the ground I can practice this with. Do, do, you, do you have to do this for each approach? There's no yes, defaults sir. that you can set? You have to no, do this for sir. each approach? Yes, sir. How, and, and how is that beneficial? <laughs> Listen, all I have to do to bring up the ILS is put the ILS in the SL30. Yeah. Okay. So to do an uncoupled approach, that's how difficult it is. Okay. And the ILS is superimposed on top of my my PFD, which is exactly where you want it, right? On the attitude indicator. Right. What better right. place to have your needles, right? Right, right. Okay. So that's hand flying it. That's it. That's all of hand flying it. Because the SL30 auto identifies it. Okay. Well, what, what, how do you couple the SL30 to the autopilot? Ah, well, now you've got to flip a switch. You've got to punch through uh, two or three layers of menus on the PFD, and you've got to start punching buttons. And it takes about two minutes worth of punch of buttons. Twist. Oh, this, punch, is, this is not twist, a kit fox. No, it's not a kid fox. I'll I mean, give you all of that. Well, look, I mean, with my five thirty, <laughs> no, 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 I'm not, I'm not saying that's a lot of work, okay, uh, at all. I'm not saying that's um, not an inconsiderable amount of, of of effort. But I have to do pretty much the same thing with my five thirty and my sixty days too. There's, that's there's my some switch off exactly. But, there, but there's always exactly. there's always going to be some switchology involved. But I call that easily perishable skills. And my problem is I've got a no, Garmin no, no simulator. Uh -huh. yeah, I don't have a GRT simulator. Hmm, yeah. And so I can't practice on the ground. So if I don't fly my airplane for a month, I'm actually not proficient in my head to fly a coupled approach. And And – Needless to say, I proved that. <laughs> so, which which true track autopilot right, system? Right, right seat 
uh, uh, instructor slash husband um, slash passenger screaming the whole way. What are you doing? <laughs> he, he's retired now, though. He can do that. Yeah, that's, that's one of the wife, benefits. So. You didn't see. You didn't see the pamphlet, did you? It's never pretty. <laughs> Anyhow, I'm not proud to say that this is this has been a struggle for me, but it's it's annoying to me that it's I can actually fly the approach better hand flying it right now with all of the tools I have in front of me, including a full moving map and a runway extension and, you know, the needles superimposed on the on the attitude indicator. For those of you who are not working with a with a uh, EFIS system or on the PFD, for those of you who are, but it's more difficult for me to fly the coupled approach to let the autopilot fly it hmm. right now. So seriously, yeah. So so Amy is Amy is troubled by the fact that uh, she has trouble uh, uh, going back and forth because she owns two airplanes. Right. No, See, no. Know, my hands, troubled. my hands are making this little playing a violin symbol. Right? <laughs> you know, Amy's troubled by the fact that Amy's probably not alone. That there are a lot of people out there with sophisticated systems who aren't flying the IFR portion of it enough, yeah. so that it doesn't break a major sweat when they try to couple their systems. All kidding aside, I, I'm current in three different airplanes at Southern Maine Aviation and uh, okay. similar kind of challenge, although I don't fly them IFR. But, but they all have, have uh, you know, controls that are, you know, subtly and dramatically different. And so, yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's a lot easier to get current in an airframe and engine combination than it is to get competent at some of the avionics that are in some of them, too. I mean, you know, some of these systems, menu-driven though they may be, uh, well, <clears throat> aren't necessarily the most logical thing to pick up. Yeah. And unless you're using them a fair amount or have a sim to practice on in between, uh, it can be a little daunting. I'm surprised there's no sim simulator, Amy, that you can use. I, uh, I would think can that would you, be a, a no-brainer. Can you hear me subtly screaming for one? Yeah, no. I, <laughs> I, it would seem like a natural to me, both both not only for training and, and you know proficiency, but for sales too. I would think that it would help sell these things. So, who would you approach, Jim Yonkin at True Track or the folks at Grand Rapids? I'd approach the folks at Grand Grand Rapids first. Actually, I'm volunteering to rewrite their manuals. <laughs> Isn't oh, a horrible my. thing to say? Sometimes, no, but it doesn't surprise me. Sometimes you just got to go in there and do what you got to do, huh? Try. You know, I love techies. Uh -huh. Yeah, I'm growing one. My daughter wants to be an engineer. Oh, okay. Uh, but but seriously, guys, it's got to be readable, and it's got to it got to come naturally. And my hats off. To the guys who have built a lot of these Garmin programs, um, in particular the guys at V-Flight, uh, Dantowski, who I, I know very well, who has put a lot of time and energy to teaching people how to use the product. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It, 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 and, and I think that that's something that needs to be done over and over again. Because without these simulators, and come on, guys, if it's software-driven in the box, there's nothing that says it can't be software-driven on the screen. That's right. In right. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, 
So speaking of which, how is your daughter's training going? Well, actually, she's back in school, so it's uh, on, a, on a major hiatus. And I, I no, believe... she did not solo before the end of the summer, uh-uh. though she came very, very close once again. Do you feel like you're being maybe more careful? Well, that's not the right because I know you're not being more. You, I'm not. I know you wouldn't be less careful with anybody else. Is it is it different teaching your kid to fly than teaching a stranger to fly? Sure, it is because your kid's gonna gonna say things to you that they wouldn't say to a stranger. I see. Well, there is that. Yeah, there is that. <laughs> and they're gonna stand you up a lot more often, by the way, too. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, they are. Uh Sorry to say. (laughs) I mean, what's my my cancellation fee? Come on, guys. I hear you. Right. Right. Hey, speaking of... could always withhold dinner, but that wouldn't be very nice. Speaking of -of state-of-the-art instrumentation, uh, one interesting bit of news, kind of a biggish story that's come out just in the last couple days, is uh, that uh, FAA and company have announced that they've set up a real serious target for implementing a big hunk of next gen over the Gulf of Mexico. Yeah, uh, we're so happy to hear that too. Yeah, well, you know, the next thing I want is is to put ADSB onto my GRT. Well, that's uh, that's what the whole that they've already got all the installation uh, work, the ground stations done. Uh, they've got ADSB repeaters and uh, ground stations mounted on oil rigs all out across the Gulf of Mexico. You know, there's over 9,000 oil rigs in the Gulf of Mexico. Yeah, yeah I saw that I number. Know. That's amazing, huh? It's, it's, and yeah. that's I mean, going to have a lot, but gee, many Christmas. And it's going to have ADSB right to the, right to the, practically the water line for us. I would think. And that's yeah. going oh, yeah. to bleed over into Florida for, for Jeb and I. It's going to be really nice. Yeah. Now, what, well, they're, they're, yeah, they're supposed to be implementing this in, I believe it's October, covering 240,000 square miles of the Gulf of Mexico. Now, what is it's this? It's going to be safe to fly to Cancun. What does this really mean? So, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, Cancun's. You, you, that's the wrong. Oh, Cancun. Yeah. <laughs> Come on. Or, or Costa Rica. Out. We went Costa the long Rica. way around Rica, last time. Exactly. We went there. Yeah. Why would you do that? How, how far because is Because we had too much stuff in the airplane to accommodate a life raft. Jeb, it's how, not how, that far. It's are not we talking that far. A thousand miles? Uh, barely. Barely. No, not I do, West, I do Guanaja in the um, 210. And we, you, in fact, you're hardly away from land. You go down to Key West and then you cut across to to Cancun and then you cut down from there and you really your biggest leg over water is 120 miles. So what does it's this really mean? What does this really mean? So the the the, the feds are going to roll out basically what sounds to me like ADSB and company um, mm-hmm. in this area. So what yeah. this means is they're going to all the ATC facilities that service this area are going to have have to have all the right gadgets. Mm-hmm. All the airplanes that fly in this airspace that want to take advantage of this service need to have the right gadgets. Mm-hmm. Well, they, they've been working with the offshore helicopter operators. Right. Those guys are kind a, of a no-brainer. A First, not only they're highly motivated to get this stuff installed, I would imagine. Right. Oh. oh yeah, they want weather. They want they want to see each other. Right. I mean. So what else has to happen here, other than ATC getting new new toys and air, the aircraft getting new toys? Actually, ATC doesn't really even need the new toys. 
I mean, ATC was never in in the equation to begin with. But isn't part of the point here? These guys were too low. Isn't part of the point here that they're now going to get better data um, to show to display on their screens about sure. where these aircraft all are? Exactly. Sure, yeah. but, but it's this. not. It's going to affect other traffic as well because right. there's a lot of. Uh, uh, traffic that comes out of South Texas, Louisiana, uh, southern Mississippi, and Alabama uh, that heads across the Gulf to Florida, that heads across the Gulf to Mexico, to uh, the Cayman Islands, and so forth, uh, where when they're on an instrument flight plan and flying at altitudes where they do have radar coverage, if these airplanes are properly equipped, uh, the ATC folks will be able to start using a, a separation standard that allows for a lot more capacity. Right. Uh, plus, uh, it's going to give the offshore offshore operators themselves some live access to position data for the 5,000-plus helicopter flights that service those platforms every day. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're talking about a huge volume of traffic down there just servicing the oil platforms that's maybe been in partial radar coverage out maybe 100, 150 miles from shore and then invisible after that. And Jeb uh-huh. and I can see the traffic on our way to Costa Rica now there you right. go. as well as get weather. You and Jeb are going to Costa Rica? Cool. I don't know. It sounds good to me. <laughs> okay. Yeah. RV10 or Debonair, it's your choice. Kit Fox. Slip a coin. Um, <laughs> no, we're not going in the Kit Fox. So, uh, not, not so, very far. <laughs> so, do we think this is a good idea? This uh, rollout in the Gulf of Mexico, or is this just uh, politicians it's, being politicians? It's not a, it's not a bad idea. Mm-hmm. I was going to say uh, it's a necessary first step. I think that's yeah, a great expansion yeah, a great of first the proving step. ground that they've had going on in Alaska and the Ohio River Valley already. Mm-hmm. Yes, okay. sir. All right. And actually. Um, Jeb, pretty much from your area south and through Florida um, into the Keys is already bathed in ADSB right now. Yeah. We could yeah. take we could take advantage of that. That went live a couple of months ago. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, and they're heavy. They're busy doing the installation work all, uh, all the way up the East Coast. Actually, the East Coast you can be completely bathed as long as you stay east of the Appalachian Mountains. Yeah, you can go all the way to Maine now. In ADSB coverage, yeah, it, it's kind of it's kind of an in, an invisible piece of progress that since the FAA settled on this and started the wheels rolling, uh, you know they've had an installation plan and an installation program that's been ongoing ever since. Uh, you know they they're rolling this out from the East Coast and the Gulf of Mexico west and north from there. Uh, they've also got work going on on the West Coast to p- start pulling, the, putting the installation in the ground stations there, and moving east from there. So it'll be kind of like the merger of the railroads at some point. The installation work will fill in the middle. So, Dave, uh, where's the golden spike going to be driven? That's what I want to know. You know, that's a good question. That's a good question. I'd, I'd, I'd go with Utah, but. <laughs> <laughs> okay. No, but but it's actually a really neat program, and in fact, what's next is the vendors with the transceivers and the receivers, and NavWorks has come out with a portable system that you can put into a certified airplane, as well as a fixed system that currently you can only put in an experimental, and the price point is already at about $1,500, yeah, it's so coming down. it'll only There's- come down from there. 
there's a company in Australia that's making uh, uh, Modest-style transponders that have the ADS-B out already part of the uh, architecture. And you can put them into the space where your current transponder is and plug it into your GPS for the positioning data, and you're hot there. And those are down around two grand, uh, a little over, and that's not that much different than uh, than a good mode C transponder these days. I was going to say it's a heck of a lot less than a, what, a GTX uh, 330? Uh, Garmin transponder. That's a Mode S transponder, and yep. then the other the other thing that we're seeing is that this technology is going to change rapidly, and and uh, the price point is going to change rapidly. So you really need to stay on top of it. Already, I know that I could plug it in to an RS two thirty two port on my Grand Rapids Technologies box. And I could have traffic and weather for, wait, the number I believe is free for the moment. Did I say free weather? Really? I believe I said free weather. You did say that. Yes. Yeah. 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 So this, you know, this is, in, in, from my perspective, well, uh, this is a good thing. Well, yeah, but David, you've always been uh, a supporter. It's going to give them more operational experience with it. It's going to help them in the process of, uh, of rolling out the you know, uh, next gen nationwide, and in the same vein, the uh, RTCA committee on next gen and ADSB just released their recommendations to the FAA in the last uh, week or so, uh, and that lays out kind of a roadmap, sets some standards and some ways to measure progress, uh, pinpointed some some questions and some uh, uh, areas that need to be addressed for this to go live nationwide and is helping keep the ball rolling. So, uh, you know, it seems like we're really starting to see some movement in the right direction here. Now all we need is for Congress to get off of its duff and pass FAA reauthorization so we got the live money that we need to keep the ball rolling. And uh, interesting one of the things that the RTCA recommended was some kind of support for the users to fund the transition to the new equipment. Yeah, that is did you see out that? And in, out and Amy, in. let me Amy, let me ask you a question. Yes, what sir. do you spend on database updates? Thank you. Each. You and I, you and I are are working in the same direction. I spend uh, the big fat goose egg because right now Grand, Rap- Grand Rapids Technology is providing its um, users with the databases for no money. Uh-huh. Well, okay. I'm, now, I'm looking, once I'm a looking, year, I do update my Garmin um, yeah. piece of equipment. So How that's much is that? That's, that's, just, that's a software or a data update? Data update for $150. I have, I have a um, GNS okay. 300. Okay. XL, yeah, 300 XL. Okay. Yeah. Well, I, I'm just sitting here. I I, I just paid my uh, my annual uh, fee to Jefferson for the updates I'm so on the 530. Now, I'm so sorry. I don't I don't mind you know you know anybody making a buck, but this is starting to get a little bit out of hand. No, it's obscene what what in, Jefferson in, asked. In, in two in 2004, it was 360 dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, then it started going up about five dollars or ten dollars each year. It was three eighty five in oh eight. This year it's four forty. Hmm. 
Okay, now, Jeb, I have to ask you another question. What do you pay for weather in your cockpit, next rad? Um, 20, 30 uh, a month, whatever it is. So do I. Yeah, yeah. So do I. So, and who pays the FAA's budget? Do you pay taxes? Uh, I pay taxes. The, the, the taxpayer I uh, pay taxes. tends to taxes? fund a lot of the FAA. User fees okay. fund an, another Thank great you. portion of the okay. FAA. Okay, I buy gas. Do you buy gas? I do buy fuel, yes. Okay, there you go. So yes. we are already paying for FISB, right. okay, for, for the flight information right. system out with ADSB. Got it. So – my question is, what is stopping me from paying $1,500, getting a NAVWORKS transceiver receiver, and getting my taxpayer dollars at work, and dropping my oh, – XM's not going to be happy with me – but well, dropping my XM radio subscription for FISB. The only thing stopping me is the FAA dragging its feet, putting the system into, into – yeah existence mm-hmm. that's well, the way i see it i think the other thing that has to happen here if we're going to do this right is we have to somehow get away from depicting approach plate information on mm-hmm. an approach plate i can that's that's a graphical presentation it has a set format that's evolved for 75 years or so um and, and is a pretty good product for what it is but that's um, not, it's not based on what we have available in the hardware side now. We need different software to give us that approach information. There's no reason we should be pulling up a picture of something on our multifunction display. No, or, sir. Or, I, I or a piece of paper or anything else. That data should be we, – we should be able to present that data some better well, fashion now. You, given just, the tools paid, you just paid $440 yeah, for that data. I, Why do you I, have I, to carry a paper piece – a piece of paper that you had to pay for that's got it on there, too. I know. Yeah. I, 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 I'm there. I, I understand. There's only, there's only really two three numbers that I need that are not in the 530 to begin with. I concur. Yeah. And, and those numbers are altitude numbers. That's it. And they should be in the 530 as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Well, years ago, Boyer... Phil Boyer, when he was still president of the FAA, really led a push AOPA. to get... What did I say? FAA. AOPA. Sorry about that. AOPA. Uh, When he was still president of AOPA, led a a drive to have uh, uh, somebody develop uh, avionics that could use the FAA data from an FAA database that would be free or next to nothing. Right. Because that's where Jeppesen and all the other massagers get the data. They get it from the government for free. And then they massage it into the proprietary product that works on these systems for big bucks. Right. And uh, Boyer was of a mind, and so were a lot of other people, that there ought to be a way that that can be used in some kind of public domain product so that uh, you know we're all not trapped paying 400 and some odd dollars a year just for database updates and then still have to have some kind of chart product. You know, right. Now we're moving to EFBs, which is has the potential to be cheaper and more functional for us. Uh, but even those updates are going to cost us. Yeah. Well, we pay they're, for not, the data they're not already. free. They're, they're, 
they're a lot less expensive than they're a lot, a lot less of, expensive some, some of the other solutions and some of them are free there are free services you can download yes. to various hardware solutions oh. yeah yeah you absolutely you can download yeah. the uh, pictures of the plates, absolutely, too. Yeah, you, uh, oh, if you're an AOPA member, you can get all of them uh, right. off their you, database. You can get the whole out. database from NACA, actually, if you, if you know how yeah. to do it, if, you, if you've got a little geek in you. A little Sorry, geek in Jack. <laughs> Sorry, Jack. Sorry, <laughs> Jack. Okay. Hey, we need to move on here. We need to move along here. We're never going to get through even our short list this week. Um, it's all very interesting. I, uh, it's, uh, it'll be interesting to get another practical real-world example of, uh, of how this next-gen ADSB stuff works, and, uh, and uh, we'll follow it. Uh, I recommend that you, you go over to uh, Tim Olson's website, which is myrv10.com, and take a look at his experiences with the with the Navworks boxes. Okay. Because he's got some great he's got some great pictures. We'll there. do that. We'll do that. Moving on. Um, so here's my my little personal story here. People tell me I tell me too many stories. I I go on and on with these stories. But here's my setup. Um, when I was a very little kid, and fascinated by the then very young U.S. space program. Uh, one of the the sort of uh, uh, ideas they had for for returning the uh, capsules to Earth was not to simply put them under round parachutes and have them come straight down, but to put them under a steerable parachute that was cool. It was, as I recall, it was kind of a delta wing shape or kind of a triangular shape, and it had this great name. I always thought this name always stuck with it, the Rogallo wing, and it was just just really cool stuff and. For whatever reason, um, they decided to forego that technology, and it seemed to me anyways that soon after that, that technology found its way into personal flying uh, in uh, hang gliders and, and parachuting and whatnot, and uh, uh, it just it's a memory that's always stuck with me um, uh, for you know whether how accurate it is and so I'd like Dave to tell me how accurate it is and also to remember for us the man who re- who invented the Rogallo wing Francis Rogallo who sadly just recently died David uh, the guy was he, he was he was a real brain a real genius where. For, for flying devices, uh, he and his wife uh, Gertrude, t- between them, developed about 28 patentable products for enhancing lift, for uh, altering wings, for uh, use in flight. Uh, and in the uh, 40s, working on their own in their own house in their own basement, Francis and, and, and Gertrude developed this steerable, frameless lifting device that could be deployed like a parachute except have a much greater glide ratio and much greater controllability. Uh, at the time, Francis was working for the National, what is it, National Committee for Aeronautics, NACA, the NACA. predecessor to NASA. Right. And uh, the, the, the powers that be, they didn't see a lot of potential in what he was working on, and they kind of shined on it. Uh, jump ahead a decade, Sputnik comes along, America joins the space race, uh, uh, John Kennedy puts us in a race to the moon, and NASA, the now NASA, is working on space vehicles and how to recover them. And the Regalo couple, Francis and, uh, and Gertrude, basically gave the patents for this product to NASA and went to work for them to develop uh, some products. The reason NASA went with 
round parachutes in the end was that even with the controllability of the Regalo airfoil as a recovery device, there were still concerns about the speed and the vertical forces on impact of landing a capsule on land that were less problematic splashing it in the water. Uh, so it went in that direction. Not long after that, there was some articles in uh, Popular Science, Popular Mechanics, uh, the idea that the, the wing got some publicity. Uh, experimenters started, despite the warnings in the magazine articles, started building uh, bamboo and and and, and <laughs> wire conduit framed regalo wings with uh, you know pieces of uh, tarp for the airfoil or pieces of plastic or uh, nylon. Uh, the whole movement caught on. It went from ground skimming downhill to very sophisticated, uh, highly aerodynamic efficient high aspect ratio wings that we see out in hang gliding today. Francis died on uh, on, on September, September 1st. Uh, I, but I got to meet him one time. Yeah, I want to hear about this. On the Outer Banks in North Carolina. Uh, I was down there with some friends from, uh, from Maryland. Uh, I'd gone down to soar the dunes. Uh, I'd been hang gliding for quite a number of years at that point, and had only flown the dunes a couple of times before. They are quite challenging to soar for any any uh, length of time. And uh, I was having a good day. And Mr. Regalo, who was living about five miles away, showed up with his little vehicle. His uh, I think it was a Seagull Seahawk hang glider, which was at that point already been superseded by a couple of generations, carried it up the dunes, uh, watched him set it up, helped him launch. Uh, he flew down, he came back up, he admitted that uh, he didn't think he was going to have the kind of time in the air that I was having flying a more modern wing, but he was having a good time anyway. Just introduced himself as Francis. We had a, a, a nice conversation. He watched me fly about 55 minutes. Uh, on the dunes. That was my second flight over 50 minutes that day. Uh, I had one and never made it to the hour that I was after because Kitty Hawk Kites gave a prize to any pilot that could break an hour at Jockey's Ridge State Park. Uh-huh. It was dinner for two at a nice restaurant, and I was there. I remember that. When, when, when were you hitting Jockey's Ridge? What time frame? This was about. This was. I can remember specifically. This was 1983. We might have been down there at the same time. We might have been. Same, same, yeah, because I hung out been. there. I hung out there a good bit in the late 70s, early 80s, on the on the uh, holidays. John Harris, uh, the founder and proprietor of Kitty Hawk Kites, an old friend of mine. He loaned me a wing. Uh, we did some step offs the mountaintop. You know, all. 220 feet yeah, of it. Yeah, such as it is, mountaintop, yeah. Uh, you knew it was soarable when you started to see white caps come across Albemarle Sound. And then you knew that it was, you knew it was about to be soarable when you saw the white caps on the sound, knew it was soarable when the wind blew so hard that it created a layer of blowing sand about six to eight inches deep. Uh-huh. Just brutal enough to want to get your ankles out of it and the quickest easiest way to do that was to step off into the lift Mm -hmm. and if you could stay within about a hundred feet in front of the ridge and 
within 10 feet of the ends of the ridge, the dune, and do these long, long, narrow, elongated figure eights. Always turning into the wind. You do a right turn at the left end. You do a left turn at the right end, crabbing back and forth. You could stay up and get up maybe 175, 200 feet. And at one point, it got so good, I dared myself to do a 360. And that's when I saw Mr. Regalo setting up. The 360 was a thrill because it was really rare to do on that dune. And it lets you turn back and see to the north where the Wright Brothers Memorial stood a few miles to the north. And this was the same piece of sand dune, although probably relocated a bit, that the Wright Brothers taught themselves to fly on with their own glider inventions. Mm Mm-hmm. So it was just a really monumental weekend for me. Uh, yeah. I had a third flight, closest yet, 57 minutes. Uh, we went out and had a great dinner that night and partied good with a bunch of other people anyway. But I watched Mr. Regalo set up. I'm shocked. Him down the dunes twice. Uh, on the second one, he actually got about 30 feet in the air and hovered. And crabbed back and forth a little bit. I guess he was in the air five or six minutes before the wind petered out a little bit and down the glider came. Uh, I think the only difference between his time aloft and my time aloft was technology. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep, that's great. That's great. Yet another great loss to aviation, but uh, he did so much for us. So uh, Well, if you think about the genesis of this, okay, Mr. Regalo's invention gave way to the early, really delta wing kites that gave way to the high gave way to the high aspect soaring wings that we have today. Double surface wings that are 80, 90 percent double surface, variable geometry systems, uh, uh, hinge crossbars that make the handling easier. Uh, and then somebody threw a motor on one of those. Mm-hmm. And then threw, somebody threw a motor on another one. And the next thing you know, we've got powered ultralights that evolved out of hang glider trikes and, and other permutations of the same tubing and cloth technology that evolved into the whole uh, light experimental movement that just boomed from the middle 80s until LSAs. And that evolved into the LSA movement that we've got today. And I got to feel like that although this genesis may have happened anyway, it's quite conceivable that it would have come along anyway, that we would have been years, years, years later if it hadn't been for the work of Mr. Regalo and his wife in that basement back in the 40s. Every parade needs its Pied Piper. Yep. That's right. It's great stuff. Uh, we uh, we thank him for everything he gave to us. So, uh, moving on again here. Um, Jeb has apparently figured it out. Uh, he has put his finger on... <laughs> oh, what have I done? What have I done? <laughs> He has put his finger on on the the central problem uh, of everything in general aviation. Apparently, it's all because of the cylinders. Man, you had me worried there. You had uh, me worried about where that finger was going to wind up. <laughs> Jeb has written a little uh, a little uh, editorial piece here in the, the latest issue of Aviation Safety, uh, where he bemoans the fact that uh, that uh, engine cylinder technology has not advanced much in some time, and uh, and he kind of wraps it up with this. Or these two paragraphs, he says, after what, 75 years uh, of manufacturing air-cooled aircraft engines of the same basic configuration, we should know by now how to design and build cylinders immune to crack 
cracking to barrel demating and other failures. It's no wonder, Jeb writes, at all why student starts continue their downward trend and why those who get the bug too often fail to earn the private certificate and why so many rated pilots often just fade away. We do it to ourselves. It's all because of the cylinders, apparently. Jeb, you really? Okay. Um, You know, I'm reading this thing and I'm going up. I'm going it's up. not all because of the cylinders, but it, the cylinders is, is just one more symptom. And I was going to say, he's, he's my, talking about something that's symptomatic yeah, of the movement. Yeah. My, my, my favorite is the, is the old, you know, the old style FBO that runs off customers because they don't have a hospitable environment yeah. off people. People driving in in a, in a Lexus, for example, kind of tend to expect, you know, something of a similar quality if they're going to be spending a hundred and a quarter an hour to rent it. And okay. Well, I'll buy this. Uh, although, although I think these, these two problems have very different basis or foundations or genesis. It's the air conditioning. It's, it's the air, air conditioning. I know. You've, it, got to have air conditioning. Our very, very first episode, number one, you, 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 you first told us about the air conditioning problem. Um, I would suggest that uh, it's my sense that the FBO problem is a bad marketing problem, that the cylinder problem is a regulatory problem, that uh, it's difficult to get better engines. And this leads us into into the story that's next on our list that Amy suggested. I don't uh, know that it's a regulatory problem as much as it yeah. is a, uh, a production and um, a quantity problem. Well, uh, uh, quantity, also, also a willingness to put your foot over the edge. Well... Um, there's such a relatively small quantities involved that sometimes, you know, the same tooling, uh, I don't know what, what, what tooling is used for, for some projects gets used, uh, reused, it's inappropriately set, whatever, uh, for, for small cylinder runs, it appears and small crankshaft runs and, uh, a variety of other, uh, components that we all know and love, uh, over the last, I don't know, decade or so, um, and it's, it's just getting old. We ought to know how to do this stuff by now. I think we do know how to do it. I think all right, this is not to say that certificated uh, aircraft and engines don't have some innovation happening in them. But where is really the innovation happening in, in general aviation these days? I would submit that it's happening in experimental and now LSA. And I would submit that this is this is at least in part because the, the regulatory burden is less in both of those areas. Well, there, there's some yeah, interesting yeah. stuff out there, They're like the, the solar-powered, uh, battery electric-powered, whatever uh, aircraft. Those are kind of interesting. Um, you know, the best attributes of, of a powered airplane and a sailplane at the same time. But right now, diesel... less hassle with some of the engines that are powering the LSA movement and the light experimental movement. Oh, and no, these just, engines are new. They've been around for a couple of decades now. Uh-huh. But where some of these problems show up is this endless pursuit of doing things ever cheaper or ever, quote-unquote, more efficiently that leads manufacturers to look for vendors who supply some of the raw components that they used to make themselves years ago until they figured out that not paying their skilled people lots of money to maintain production that they could farm it out to someone who would take less money and then they lose a little bit of the quality control they lose all the manufacturing control 
Uh, and those outfits do well because the OEMs stick with them, except things vary from time to time. They start looking for ways to do that job cheaper and faster and, and, and more efficiently. So you get little changes in the process sometimes that can turn out to have large, large ramifications. Uh, and I'll give you an example from uh, one of the uh, large, one of the major aircraft engine OEMs. Years ago, had a cu- two customers who tended to purchase their entire year's worth of engines in one block and have them shipped. They'd get built, they'd get shipped, then they would sit at the airframe manufacturer sometimes for 10, 11 months before they'd be strapped into an airframe, bolted into the motor mount, prop hung, cowling, closed, and go off and flight test. So there was a series there where these engines were needing to be topped a lot of them from the two airframe OEMs. If after 60, 70 hours, 100 hours, they need a new top because so much corrosion built up in these engines and all that time sitting there. Right. So rather than changing the manufacturing rhythm, the engine manufacturer came up with what it thought was a solution, a special coating that could be applied to the barrels and the engines and the cylinder heads that would prevent that corrosion so that this OEM could continue to realize the uh, production quantity volume break of buying all their engines and having them all shipped at once up front and it sitting on their floor, except there was an unintended consequence of that coating. When that coating wore off, the rings wouldn't seal. The rings wouldn't seat. So they wound up not really needing a top so much as needing an endless pocket for replacing oil and the bloody things. Hmm. So they went back to something different. Eventually, things settled out to where the engines were built in separate blocks and shipped separately. Uh, and somebody made a deal with the devil to eat whatever the cost difference was in not doing these big blocks and shipping them all at once. Uh, an OEM changed vendors for the crank blanks. And the people making the crank blanks thought that they had a better way to do this, to make it easier and less expensive to manufacture, uh, that would have all the same durability. And, wow, uh, unintended consequence. That process didn't produce the strength that the old process, the more expensive process, did. So then we had a spell where cranks were failing. And... We've seen both of the big engine OEMs go through these kind of cycles where it's one's cranks and another one's cylinders and another one's cranks and the first one's cylinders and back and forth. Now we're seeing it with third-party aftermarket cylinders. Uh, This is not brain surgery, folks. Amy, um, you being far more broad-bounded than Jeb... You, 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 when you began to ponder, I'm gonna, I'm gonna put that on a T-shirt. <laughs> you, uh, you, uh, when you began to ponder this subject, you went beyond cylinders and wondered about the entire engine system uh, and uh, and where we might go with it. You want to elaborate on that a little bit? Well, yeah, I think that that most of the engines we're flying behind are 1940s technology. Well, they are. They are. And, diesel. And, diesel. I'm gonna say it once. Diesel. Uh, Oh, my gosh. Yes, diesel. But let's talk about what can burn the diesel. How about how about a Wankel? How about a Mistral? GE Check, which used to How be Walther. How fast are you going to turn them? Are you what about have... a Rolls-Royce 500? 
How about a hybrid? I mean, a, a direct drive engine is still the most efficient. Okay, fine, but you can have a direct drive engine. It doesn't have to be tearing itself apart as a horizontally opposed. Why can't it be round? Well, you know, there's a lot of thing about out there on the cylinder heads. One thing about horizontally opposed, though, is it's a fairly uh, aerodynamically efficient shape, much yeah, more yeah. so than the round engine. Well, you say that, but I saw some really beautiful round engines at Friedrichshafen, and, and one of them was a Mistral, and it was elegant. And it's not trying to tear itself apart. And it doesn't, its displacement is the same as the Lycoming IO540 that I've got in my airplane. Uh-huh. Are any of these well, engine technologies? And it weighs the same. Are I any of I, I know there's a, there's a company in Australia, I, I presume they're still in business. They were making, maybe New Zealand, they were making a um, new manufacturer, new engineering, new design radial engine. Of no, they're still there. Horsepower. Rotec. Yeah. Is Rotec, it Rotec? As that's opposed it. to right. Rotec. And, and it's a right. beautiful, right. the Rotec engine yeah. oh, it's, is a beautiful it's, it's engine. It's machine, just per, it's beautiful. Right. It's a piece of well, art. I saw a few of them at Oshkosh this we, summer. We, yeah. we looked at, at Jack and, and, and Jeb, the three of us walked around and looked at some beautiful installations of the Jabiru, the yes. 3300. That yeah. engine's milled out of block. My, no kit, box, my kit box is running a, a Jabiru 2200 for years now. Yeah. Yeah, that, and, that, and it's a great engine. So there's one example. What other uh, are there? Are any of these other engine, you know, technologies, if you will, well, uh, being what, used in aircraft kind of these air, days? What kind of aircraft are we talking about here? Are we talking about an LSA? Or yeah. Are we talking about something like an RV10 or Bonanza? Are we talking, talking about, about something like King Air? You know, I don't know. We're, what are we're we talking, talking about your airplane and my airplane, Jeff. Yeah. We're talking about our next engine. Right. Okay. Well, which is the, maybe the ten ideal. years down the road, but but it's out there. Oh, it's, it, the ideal it, it, would be a compression ignition, liquid cooled, uh, uh, overall lightweight, uh, flat engine that could burn diesel fuel or kerosene. And uh, the, the reasons for that is because air cooled engines have much worse spe- specific fuel consumption than liquid cooled engines. I They're agree. Far more efficient. Mm-hmm. I agree. But why? Lug a bunch of liquid aloft to cool an engine when you've got all this free air. Well, you got the free air, except that free air gets more scarce the higher you go. <coughs> but it gets well, colder that, the higher you go. That's also yeah, true for the air. Mo- there's fewer molecules carrying that heat away. Uh, that's as also cold true as it is, there's fewer molecules. That's also true, though, for the radiator system. Mm-hmm. It is, but it's easier to keep a stable engine temperature when you can have the liquid cooling system modulate its cooling flow. So, Dave, why did Bombardier kill the big uh, Rotax engines that I saw not five years ago in Orlando at a big press briefing? The Rotax. Oh, I, remember, had. I, I know exactly what you're talking about. Uh, you know, I remember those well. Those mm-hmm. engines had some great promise. They were V engines too. They like, were gorgeous. Uh, they, the gorgeous, and, and they followed in the track of the Rolls-Royce Merlin and mm-hmm. the Allison V12s, uh, smaller, of course. But uh, uh, they killed it for two reasons. One, they couldn't get past the, the liability profit equation. Thank you. And second, second Bombardier Large 
sold them. Was at the time taking a look at what it wanted to keep as core competencies and has since spun off uh, that the company that makes those engines is Bombardier uh, Recreational Products, BRP. That's who makes the Rotec, Rotax engines now. It's no longer part of Bombardier Large. It's no longer yeah. a kiss cousin to Learjet. That is correct. That is and all they correct. Uh, they didn't want to load up the company with all the issues that would go with having that program in development, in production, while they were trying to sell it. Uh, I think there's still potential for an engine like that. Would Your you dog is that going dog? Nuts. Yeah, what did you do? <laughs> mom, mom came home and went to talk to the next door neighbor where there's another dog. Ah, okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. So we got a little. We're feeling neglected and or jealous, and she's already she's already escaped once and jumped the fence to go play with that other dog. So. We'll have to continue our conversation solving the whole problem of engine technology in the future, but uh, it's it's an interesting question because I've for years it's puzzled me why a, a airplane engines, at least the ones I fly, are such simple devices, and uh, and yet you know you look at the average automobile has a much more sophisticated at least control system around the engine. And uh, well, let me tell you why you don't want to put an automobile engine in your airplane. How many of you know about the the latest RV10 incident? Um, where they had uh, an engine, an automobile engine, um, I'm not going to say which, in the airplane, and the engine innovator and the airplane owner, builder, were in the airplane together, and they were having some overheating issues, and the computer shut the engine down right after takeoff when the engine overheated. <laughs> And they barely got it back to the runway and collapsed the gear on landing. They plopped it. You, you just got to keep your eye on them computers every second. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm telling, telling you, man. Yeah, I know. I know. You, Skynet. Sky, Skynet. Skynet yeah. is already in charge. <laughs> Two best things that could happen to us is a, a, one of the alternative fuel programs that's out there that can turn algae into a, uh, 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 an unleaded compatible gasoline-type fuel uh-huh. that actually has higher octane than under low lead. And the yeah. other is the, continuous, the continuing movement to digital electronic engine control. Fuel injection, ignition. Uh, we had electronic ignition on our airplane. It did wonders for the uh, starting, climb performance, and fuel consumption. Uh, and Continental's uh, Aerosance divisions got this uh, uh, single throttle lever, single lever throttle system. Boy, easy for me to say. Uh, that controls, you know, fuel flow, mixture, power setting, all with one lever. Uh, individual cylinder, electronically delivered fuel injection, electronic ignition, all works together. Uh, it's not like having a liquid cooled engine, but it's a big step toward what we've got in automobiles in terms of power delivery and fuel efficiency. Yeah. Yeah. Here, here. Here, okay. here. Right. But it's got to be programmed correctly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Moving on. Um, so I was I'm glad you said that. This is a this is a new story. I haven't seen the story anywhere, but Jeb put it on our list. Uh, Jeb, something about a failed readback that may have been a contributing factor to the, uh, <coughs> there, there, Hudson there, River hearing, there was a hearing on Capitol Hill. I think it was today or yesterday, um, talking about the Hudson River corridor. 
um, mid-air collision. This was the uh, it was early August. Um, the fixed swing in the helicopter. Yeah, this is August eight between a uh, Piper uh, Lance um, PA thirty two R three hundred uh, and a uh, an air tour helicopter. Um, I'll just read from this AP story. National Transportation Safety Board Chairman Deborah Hurstman told a congressional committee Wednesday that an air traffic controller gave the plane's pilot the radio frequency for Newark Liberty International Airport in New Jersey, but the pilot read back the wrong frequency. Mm. Um, Uh. She said there was no indication the pilot was corrected, and he never contacted Newark. Later attempts to contact the pilot were unsuccessful. The uh, NTSB also has on their website an animation um, showing um, both 3D and uh, a plot view of the uh, two aircraft paths, um, as well as the audio, the ATC audio from Teterboro and the interphone communications. It's all quite interesting. Um, it was, it, for all intent and purpose, it was a normal VFR departure from a Delta and a handoff to the next controller. Um, the controller read a frequency, the pilot read back a frequency, and it was the wrong frequency. And really, the, the transmission from the pilot in the readback was a little garbled, and it was hard to tell. You had to really listen to it intently, and you had to know what you were looking for. Um, well, that, yeah. that answers the question of why nobody was able to get the guy uh, well, know, when both Newark and Teterboro <laughs> were trying to raise him. If you... If you listen, to, if you look at the animation, the time, the elapsed time between the handoff and the collision might have been a minute. And there's a time tape on it. I didn't punch a stopwatch or anything. It, it might be less than that. I don't recall. Uh, but the punchline is um, that the time involved was not that much, and is it would be a typical um, misdialed com radio situation. Uh, for a moment or two, and that's basically when this midair happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I, I kept I, I, I kept wondering whether traffic on either or both frequencies might have kept stepping on the guy, well, or whether the, wh- he was keying the mic the same time the controller was trying to raise him. In which case, did nobody you, hears the other guy. Yeah. Did you look this at the video? Could answer that question. Did you Did you listen to that video? No, I did not. Okay, it's it's the frequency wasn't that busy. Mm-hmm. I okay. heard a, someone speculated in some story I saw that um, that that the the midair may have been I don't know how to put it exactly that that the fixed wing pilot may have had his head down in the cockpit dealing with a radio issue at the moment, and that's my he. he that's, I mean, there were a lot of reasons why he didn't see the helicopter, but that might have been one possible. of them. Yeah, it's entirely I'd love, to, I'd love to know what kind of equipment he had in the airplane. Yeah, yeah. and how familiar he was with it. Yeah, well, I, I happened to look up the end number shortly after this, and it was a fairly active airplane. So, if it was the same guy flying it, there's no reason to think that he wasn't at least practiced, if not proficient. Yeah. It, it, it stayed pretty busy. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. Um, similar on the same uh, subject. Uh, apparently, uh, Jeb uh, Senator Frank Lautenberg, Democrat, New Jersey, is is uh, is uh, someone who you're very fond of. 
<laughs> I Just kidding. Cover, I remember covering him when I was still in D.C. Yeah. What is he, the, he, what is, he was a fossil in the 80s. Okay. What has the senator done that, 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 that you disagree with? He's just, this is pretty much the, the um, um, demonstration. This is Frank of, being Frank. This is Frank being Frank. This is pretty oh, much the Frank. demonstration of all politics being local. Okay. Uh, Lautenberg uh, is is a uh, senator from New Jersey, Frank R. Lautenberg. Um, he, he happens to be also chairman of the Senate Commerce, uh, Commerce Subcommittee Science on and Aviation. Transportation. Commerce, yeah. science, and transportation. Full committee, but that's the full committee. But this is he's subcommittee on on uh, aviation chairman, which has just got yeah. to be a pain, in, a royal pain in the butt for every aviation lobbyist in Washington. Yep. But that that Going all back having been thirty said, years. Yeah. Going back oh yeah. Thirty years. Oh yeah. The man. The man's got the uh, a long, long memory. Okay. But here's the, here's the thing that intrigues me. He's got a house. This. He's he's got a house that looks out on the Hudson. And he's he's just raking over the coals all these FBI guys, I mean, FBI, FAA guys, FAA guys, yeah. On this here's, the, here's the thing that tickles me. It's like some of the other lies that we hear in politics these days. That if the liars would just take a moment to actually read the available information, uh, they might think twice before they opened their mouth. Because in this particular case, the the, the good senators talking about how if they had additional radar repeaters on the uh, bridges thank you they be able to see down thank to the water ignores the fact that the controllers at both Cheetahboro and Newark had the guys on radar coverage and tried to warn them right well not only that but in radar coverage he, I don't he wants to put issue. he wants to put a radar on the George Washington, Washington bridge bridge yeah, man is down. insane He's really not thinking on all cylinders there. That's, that's absurd. Except, oh, except oh. they're already under radar coverage. They're oh, down to oh, about 50 yeah. feet. Obviously, old technology cylinders. So, uh, um, Well, they need that new proactive radar that thinks ahead of the pilot, reads their mind, right. analyzes the situation, and happen seven minutes before it happens. Oh, come on. A little Viagra would just fix okay. everything. <laughs> All right. We're moving on now. There we go. There we go. That was, that was there we go. L-A-B-O-D-A. <laughs> uh, That's why he's seeing things blue. Hey, Jeb, this is Jeb, This is not on our list, but um, I wondered, I know you were following it very carefully. Uh, has there been any, are they still searching for those black boxes down in South Atlanta? Trans 447. Um, no. No, they they stopped, they, they stopped and that was several weeks ago. Actually, we didn't talk about it at the time. Um, the uh, apparently they to hear the French authorities tell the tale. Uh, they've made three different levels of searches for those black box. There was a surface search. Um, there was a uh, an acoustic search, listening for um, the pings, and then there was a a sonar slash radar. I don't know uh, electronic search. Um, designed to try to spot the wreckage generally, uh, and none of those have been successful. Um, this has been three or four weeks ago now that they called off the search. Uh, today there was a lengthy story um, AP floated about the uh, pitot tubes on uh, not only this particular uh, type of aircraft, the Airbus A330, but other Airbus aircraft and other, and perhaps Boeing also, uh, and basically. Um, they're saying that 
um, the new policy is no more than one of these Thales, as the brand or as the manufacturer's name, n- no more than, than one of these Thales uh, pedo tubes in, in conjunction with at least two, uh, I think it's the good rich or good year tubes, pedo tubes. Um, and you can fly with three of the, the good rich or good year tubes. Um, they're really coming down on, on sw- trying to switch out those pedo tubes. That's all that they know to do right now because they haven't found the black boxes. Uh, the French authorities do say that they are uh, looking for um, you know appropriate funding, whether that's government or private, to really go at this uh, the right way with the right vehicles and the right budget. Um, and I'm, I'm sure it'll happen. It's just going to take time. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Hey, Amy. Uh you were telling us that Richard Collins has a new book. Yes, he does. It's called The Next Hour, and uh, Sporties published it. You can get it from sporties.com. Oh, they actually and published it, not you. just selling yeah. it. Oh, okay. Uh-huh. No, no, they're not just selling it. And i got to tell you, it's a really good book. Um, it, it's called The Next Hour because as far as Collins is concerned, that's the most important hour you're ever going to fly. Hmm. The next hour you log in your logbook. It's interesting, yeah. And uh, he does he does uh, recap a little bit of some some information that he had from other books, but really we we learn a lot about Collins in this book, and I I find that the most hmm. interesting of all. Is it more um, autobiographical? You're saying? No, um, but you do learn. All his books are autobiographical to a certain degree. Yeah, that's true. Um, but you do you do learn some stuff. A lot of people wondered. Um, why he did what he did with his his P two ten? You know, he scrapped it. Right, right, right. Okay, um, but he will explain to you in this book that he talked to a lot of engineers who told him that the pressure capsule on that airplane was really only rated for so many hours, yeah. and his airplane was definitely past that. And he oh. was beginning to see the maintenance items that happen to old airplanes when they start to wear. Right. And he was uh, had enough of a conscience to not want to just pass that on to whoever might have it next. Thank you, Dave. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. And not only that, but he talks about uh, when you get to the point where you feel like you're not fit to fly anymore. As a yeah, that's, very that's the part that, it, that that's the part that interests me yeah. most. Age related, you mean, Amy? I, Age related. In his case, well, I, I want to read case. that now so I can keep a closer eye on Jeb in the future. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Dave. God. And we will watch you in return, darling. God will get you, David. God will get you. If well, the robots don't first, yeah. that's right. But but he he he. I, I'm very proud to say that he he really hits on some tough issues and and they're very real issues for this aging pilot population and Jeb, well, it, you can back me up on this what is the average age of a pilot in the u.s i would oh, guess geez. it is uh 45 to 50 it's creeping towards 50 darling yeah yeah and and oh. and and creeping Richard in that never, rapidly, just Richard like you never and me. was one to be shy about what he was convinced of being correct. And no. he was always, <laughs> always good to engage in a give and take discussion. 
Yes. And willing to listen to an alternative point of view. And if you came up with something he hadn't thought of, would always acknowledge it and put it into his thinking process. Yes. Uh, that's one of the reasons why I, I, I – there were a lot of times when I'd read Richard's work and kind of, you know, want to roll my eyes and kind of make it an age-related thing. You know, he thinks differently than I do because we're a different generation. But you never questioned his sincerity, never questioned uh, – that he truly believed in what he was saying and that he had good information to back it up. And most of the, the listeners may not know this, but this is a second-generation GA pilot and GA aviation writer. His father was a pilot and an aviation writer right. and, and publisher right. before he him. He goes into that. He actually he spends a lot of time talking about his dad, and he does talk about his younger days. It's, it's, it's really a wonderful book. And well, I, I have to tell you guys, you, you need to read the book. That you know that P two ten was a one owner airplane. Yes, sir. That's right. He That's bought exactly it. Right. Yeah. right. Yeah. Ten thousand hours he put on that airplane, guys. Yeah. yeah. He did an article in Flying once that I had, I had not yet owned an airplane, uh, but was right up to the edge of of making the step when. Uh, Richard penned a column about looking back on he just had another engine overhaul. Yeah. You know, the third or fourth. Uh and he'd had all these other systems overhauled at the same time because, you know, the airplane at that point had pushed at eight thousand hours. And uh he'd gone back through the aircraft logbooks and resurrected what he'd spent on tires and oil <laughs> spark plugs he had the most ridiculous records and engine overhauls but then he flipped it over with the number of trips that he'd taken and the place he's gotten to gone he'd, he'd been able to go in it and on and on and, and the you know the net of the of reading the whole thing was owning an airplane's a good thing mm-hmm. it's not something you want to do lightly and right. it does require, you know, it does impose some demands on your life and your budget. Yeah. But in general, owning an airplane is a good thing. And the trick is picking the airplane to match what you want to do and your ability to pay for what you want to do. Yeah. It's yeah. true. Now, did you ever fly in the airplane with them? Because I did. Oh, really? Never, never got to. What was that like, Amy? Uh, it was wonderful. It was absolutely wonderful, I have to tell you. Um, you didn't touch anything. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> now, you need to understand that I think I was 24, and he was considerably older than that. And I was a new employee, and he had hired me. And we were flying from uh, New Jersey down to Louisiana, Monroe, as a matter of fact. And, uh, but I was briefed ahead of time. Not to touch anything uninvited, and to study the situation, and for for God's sake, don't sneeze all over the. <laughs> That's great. The book is called uh, "The Next Hour," and it's uh, Richard Collins from, uh, and you can get it. From we hope Sp- we hope it does well for yeah, Richard. His other books Sporties. have always been useful. Sporties. I have all confidence. Sporties. dot com. Uh, let's see now. Where are we here? Uh, Shout outs. That's where we are. Uh, David, there's a couple things here with your name on it. You want to talk about one or two, both of these? Oh, sure. Uh, quick and dirty. Congratulations. All of us pat ourselves on the back. Today is National Aerospace Day. I am uh, patting. Cool. What does that mean? 
Well, it's really it really exists to kind of uh, remember and and congratulate the folks that make our industry possible, which you know it, it covers everybody from the folks that build the engines that we were just lamenting to build the airframes, to working on the engines, working on the airframes, pumping the fuel for us, building the military and the airline hardware and the space hardware. We're all part of the aerospace community. So congratulations to us. My second little shout out is a last ditch for those who like to think ahead maybe want to do something different saturday september 26th lee bottom flying field near hanover indiana it is right on the ohio river about oh it's oh, not i thought it was this weekend it's not it's it's the weekend it's after 26 yeah, yeah right okay it's, that's why I, I wanted to get it in now, give folks uh, enough cushion to actually think about doing it. Saturday, September 26th, uh, fly in by all means. Uh, they, they put on quite a little event there. It will be crowded. It will be busy. Uh, you're welcome to drive in, but we suggest that you visit the website and reserve tickets because this year they are capping ground admissions vehicle admissions at 750 vehicles whoa whoa that's a big number because because they have limited space to accommodate ground vehicles if they're going to accommodate all the uh wood fabric and tailwheel mm-hmm, airplanes mm-hmm. and others that are welcome to fly in but that's it the wood fabric and tailwheel fly in coming up on the 26th lee bottom flying field in southern indiana uh Visited there once when it was in the hands of prior owners. Uh, they've really done a great job of advancing it. A uh, lot of fun. Uh, you'll see a lot of great hardware. Have a great day. So hope you're able to do it. I'm not going to be able to, unfortunately. Sounds like fun. Mm-hmm. Definitely, definitely. And I want to make sure people know that uh, the AOPA summits down here in our neck of the woods, Jeb, mm-hmm. uh, November right. 5th through 7th. Correct. And uh, Women in Aviation is going to be playing a nice part in that. Not only are we going to have an exhibit booth this year, but we also have our president as part of the opening session. And um, we've got a women's room. And we've got a breakfast on Friday morning. I, I think it's going to be a great time. So I'm de- I'm definitely going to be there, and uh, I look forward to seeing some of our listeners there. Yeah, yeah that's my plan. That's Very cool. My yeah, plan. Absolutely. Yeah, I, cool. I will be there. I just don't know exactly when. Yet. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of which, um, uncontrolled airspace is headed for Wichita, and of course, no good can come of that. Uh, we're, <laughs> we are uh, headed down there. Uh, uh, Jeb and Dave and I are going to be attending the uh, Bombardier Safety Stand Down for uh, four days uh, that week, and uh, that'll be a lot of fun. We uh, expect to report on that, and then uh, we're going to be holding. A, we are probably going to be holding a, a UCAP meetup. On uh, I believe Friday evening is that right, David? Friday evening is what we're shooting for. Friday evening for the uh, meetup at the Hangar One Steakhouse Hangar, uh, the Tower Bar. Yeah, and we'll put a thing on the uh, homepage, uh, the UCAP uh, Uncontrolled Airspace homepage, with the specific details. But uh, if you're in the Wichita area and you'd like to come by and and, uh, and raise a beer with us, uh, that would be Friday evening. And then uh, we are also uh, going to. Sure, though I have to get up, I have to get up really early. We're going to rouse. We're going to rouse Jeb quite early on Saturday morning, and uh, we're going to fly on down to Ponca City and go to the uh, the uh, pancake breakfast. 
and then we're going to commandeer a picnic table and set up a couple of microphones and record an episode of the podcast from Ponca City. Ooh, uh, I got to hear that. And that will be uh, that's October third. So the meetup is the second, and Ponca City is the third. Uh, and we would love to see uh, any listeners who are in the area. Uh, at- Papa November Charlie's the designator. Absolutely the best fly-in breakfast on the planet. Yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun. It's going to be a lot of fun. Excellent. Any other shout-outs, Jeb, Amy? No, nothing from me. Okay. Well, I'll stick a fork in this one. Uh, Ow! That's Amy Laboda. She's a uh, freelance aviation writer and the editor-in-chief of Aviation for Women magazine. Amy, where can people find you on the Internet? At www.wai.org, but the squeal was actually from Higdon. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. Dave likes to he, – he puts these little sound effects at the tail end of the show here. But uh, anyway. It's the – some of that's the dog, though, I think, still. You think that's what hey, it is? It, it happens every time I get forked. Yeah. Blame it. All right. Jeb Burnside. Tango, Mike, India. Okay? Jeb. It's, it's time, time. Jeb Burnside uh, is uh, an aviation journalist currently serving as the editor-in-chief of Aviation Safety Magazine. Jeb, where can people find you on the Internet? Can't do it. I'm not there anymore. Yeah, that's what you <laughs> say. Erased all evidence whatsoever. <laughs> Um, unlikely. Unlikely and impossible. Um, AviationSafetyMagazine.com is the day job. Um, personal website is still, still, JEBurnside.com. And uh, every now and then I pop up on AvWeb. Great. Every now and then I pop up on UCAP. That's right. Every now and then, yeah. And, and Dave Higdon. Dave is an aviation photographer, an aviation journalist, and the U.S. editor for London's World Aircraft Sales Magazine. David, where can people find you on the Internet? Oh, the World Aircraft Sales stuff is at avbuyer.com. There's electronic stuff that I do at aea.net. I uh, try to regularly show up in Jeb's publication, uh, and he just said that one. And my photo site is davehigdon.biz. Or just Google me and weed out the golf writer and the theoretical physicist. That's right. I don't do either theoretical physics or golf. Because it's so, so easy to confuse you with those two professions. And I'm Jack Hodgson. I'm a private pilot. Not if, not if you're a regular listener. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> a freelance writer and a new media producer. Learn more about me at jackhodgson.com and aroundthefield.net. Thanks, as always, to Jeff Ward for creating our excellent show notes. Thanks to Mike Morgan, Royce Earl, and to the many other listeners who have created our show opening disclaimer clips. You guys rock. Yeah. Excellent. You're also. Uh, we are also very grateful for the financial support we, we receive from our listeners. For information on how you can make a donation to this podcast, see the Uncontrolled Airspace homepage in the box in the right-hand column labeled Tip Jar. It doesn't need to be very much. Just 10 or $15 over the span of a year is a big help. And don't forget, you can visit with us all at the Uncontrolled Airspace website. You can read the blog, view the forums, check out the wiki, the aviation movies list, and more. All of that is at uncontrolledairspace.com. We've David, even got new movie editions this week. Oh, so. hey, I have, I'll have to check that out. I'm a little, I'm a little behind. I, I, I got, my life was crazy the last few weeks, but I'm gradually catching up on everything. Hey, David, what were you going to say? You want to live longer, go fly, because time spent flying is not subtracted from your lifespan. That's right. That's enough talking. Let's go flying. TTFM. <laughs>